Well, good morning to you all, the saints of Westminster Presbyterian. What a great privilege it is to stand where we stand this morning. What an honor it is to sit where we sit and to sing where we just sang. Take a look around at this place. This is a beautiful place, is it not? We are greatly privileged. Now, I'm not speaking about this lovely sanctuary that we happen to be in here in Rock Tavern, New York. I'm talking about the fact that this morning, you and I have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem. I'm talking about the fact that in an intense way, a unique way, in corporate worship of the triune God, we have come this morning to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And beloved, we have come this morning to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood of Abel, the sprinkled blood of Christ, I should say, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Who amongst us is worthy of such things. Our text this morning is Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. And we will approach what I hope will be a deeply reorienting and restructuring text for our life together, for our corporate worship. I truly believe that this is the central text in Scripture that deals with how we should approach coming to this place each week. So I hope it will be reorienting. I hope it will be restructuring. And we're going to approach the text this morning under three headings. What we have come to, why we don't see it, what we need in order to see it. What we have come to, why we don't see it, what we need in order to see it. So first, we'll ever so briefly sketch out what it is that you and I have come to, what it is that we have stepped into. And my prayer in earnest this morning is that not a single one of us will enter these doors, enter this sanctuary the same way again. So the author of Hebrews, right before he gets to our text, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, he had been examining the status of the people under the law, what we might call lex sola, or the law alone. And now, in our remarkable text, Scripture is going to attempt to perform corrective eye surgery on us and help us to see the state that we, under grace, are called to. And I want to be abundantly clear at the outset of this sermon that this is a state that you and I have, capital H, capital A, capital V, capital E, have, present tense, right now, at this very moment, come to. Our author does not say, you know, I know things are pretty difficult down there below. But have hope. Because one day, you're going to come to these future realities. He doesn't say that. He says, but you have come to these things. He says that we have, present tense, come to the heavenly city. To Mount Zion. He says we have not come to Mount Sinai, as the saints of old led, led by Moses did. Our reality is not that of a people who have come to a place or a mountain that can be touched by hands. 
That's not the situation that we're in here. Rather, he says that we have come to a place populated this morning, populated with countless angels. That's what the author of Hebrews says. We've come to a place populated by countless angels. Angels, beings who are often seen as messengers of judgment because of our sin, because of our corruption. Angels who almost always have to preface their appearance with the words, fear not, because of the terror that they engender in sinful man. Those angels occupy the same space that you and I are in right now. They help fill the audible void of any of us that don't find it necessary to sing loudly our hymns. They picked up the slack. They were singing with you. This morning, we have stepped into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And all of those who are united to Christ, having been justified by free grace and adopted as sons of God, they have all of the rights of the firstborn. We know historically, all of us, that the firstborn son receives the inheritance. And that means that those that are allied, integrated, assembled, and incorporated by the blood of Jesus, they have full-blown sonship. And they receive all of the inheritance rights. Namely, access to God himself. It is to that assembly that you have come this morning. Beloved, can you even begin to grasp the fact that this morning, you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Today we worship with Coach Spanger. Not just metaphorically as if you were still sitting right there. But in a real, tangible way, we worship with his spirit that has been made perfect as he awaits the resurrection of his body. We, at this very moment, we worship with Heidi Easterbrook. We worship with Arthur Byrons. We just sang our hymns with Moses and Elijah. We were called into worship this morning, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they answered the call. The great singer of the Holy Spirit, David He will be singing with us in our closing hymns. He will be singing to the one who is pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. David will be there with you. This morning, in an acute, heightened, and profound way, in corporate worship, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. When you enter this place, you come to his feast. You dine at his table And he freely offers you his cup. He already drank your cup. Your cup of condemnation. Your cup of judgment. Your cup of wrath. Your cup of shame. He drank that cup to the dregs. And then in this place, he invites you to his table. And he says, drink of my cup, which is the New Testament in my blood. He doesn't say that his cup is a cute reminder. He beckons all of the nations from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to come here to drink his cup, which is the new covenant in his blood. Now, you have not come to church this morning. That's what you've come to. So with that said, 
looking at our second point, why is it that we don't see it? If that is what we have come to, why is that not what we see? Well, Scripture gives us a pretty clear, consistent, one might even say repetitive answer as to why we do not see that present reality that we have come to. The Old Testament is flooded with telling us the reason that we don't see that is because we are blind. The Old Testament is filled with prophetic warnings to the house of Israel in regards to their undeserving and downright being just destitute of vision. Over and over again, the Old Testament hits us with this. In Isaiah 6.10, we get a judgment text right in the midst of Isaiah's grand vision of God. You guys all know that vision, right? That's the one where the angel comes down and he touches the coals, the burning coals to Isaiah's lips. Right in the midst of that grand vision, we get these judgment words. Isaiah 6.10. Make the heart of his people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. It's not just Isaiah. All the major prophets hit on this note. Jeremiah 5.21, we hear these words. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. You heard it in our Old Testament reading, Ezekiel 12, 2. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, because they are a rebellious house. I could go on, but I'll try to keep this sermon just short of a Tolstoy novel as far as the length is concerned. It's going to be just short, though. Buckle up. Now, it's not just the Old Testament that harps on this theme of blindness, but it is every bit as present in the New Testament as well. Those walking and talking with Christ, those in the immediate gravitational force of the Word made flesh, were every bit as blind as the rebellious and recalcitrant Israelites who were demolished by the Assyrians. Peter, James, John were as blind, as veiled in their sight, as those from Judah who were dragged across the desert into the captivity of the Babylonians. I mean, why do you think we have so many miraculous accounts of Jesus healing the blind? I mean, think of it for a minute. There are thousands upon thousands of things that Jesus never does in Scripture. The incarnate Christ, there's, you, could, you could write thousands of books about the things he did not do while in the flesh. And yet, he heals the blind on at least four separate occasions. Mark 8, John 9, Mark, Matthew, Matthew 10, Matthew, or Mark 9. And that theme that is prevalent in both the Old Testament and the New Testament... It continues throughout the entire New Testament canon. I mean, the book of Acts, that glorious book full of the acts of the spirit of the ascended Christ, that book full of miracles and conversions, a lot of happy stuff there. This is how the book of Acts ends. This is the note that it goes out on. Acts 28, 27. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes. Not to be outdone, Paul chimes in. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, 
down to this very day. Down to this very day. That's our condition. We are a visionless people. We do not see things the way that they are. And that is why we fail to realize the grandeur of what you and I have stepped into this moment. This morning, what we have stepped into. Because if we fully realized it, if we understood the magnitude of this moment, our hearts might burst. We might not be able to handle it. In her marvelous novel, Middlemarch, George Eliot, she writes these lovely words. She says, if we had keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat. And we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. We should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. We are so unaware of the actual realities that we are stepping through right now. It often takes special moments, special talents, many times special artists, and special writers who can sort of grab hold of something and shove it before our eyes, shove it before our faces, help us to see things a little bit better. I'm sure you've had those experiences before. When you're standing before a brilliant piece of art, an incredible film that you just watched, you just got through an incredible book, a certain song, you have that experience of sort of just being knocked back, that experience that just bulldozes you, levels you, it leaves you saying, I can't believe I never saw that thing that way before. I'll never be able to view that thing the same way ever again. It takes special artists to do that, though. There's this modern artist some of you may be familiar with. His name is Makoto Fujimura. Makoto Fujimura. And Fujimura has produced all kinds of very interesting art. And he's currently working on a project on the Psalms where he is in the painstaking Japanese style of art known as Nihanga, Nihanga style, he is making 150 individual paintings, one that sort of captures the essence of each of the 150 psalms. Fujimura has said these words about what the artists are doing, what good artists are doing, and I quote, Artists are like spies, the spies who Moses sent into Canaan, and who brought back fresh fruit from the promised land to the people still in the desert. That is to say, they make dangerous forays into God's future and return to show an often disbelieving world and sadly, an often suspicious church what the future is like. Think about that analogy he gave there. He says, artists are like the spies that Moses sends into the land of Canaan. Remember, the Israelites, they've been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Canaan is a typological land, right? It's a type of our future heavenly eschatological rest. So that they've been delivered, and they're on the outskirts of the promised land, the outskirts of heaven in advance. And they send spies into the land to see what the future tastes like, to see what it's going to be like. And those spies ventured out there, and they brought the fruit back to those outside Canaan, and they got to taste of heaven in advance. They got to taste the future in advance. Fujimura says that's what artists are like. They're making dangerous forays into the future, 
trying to bring vision to us visionless people and be like, here, this is what it's really like. I know you don't see it that way, but taste of the future now. That is what we do in corporate worship of the triune God. We make dangerous forays into the future and being transformed by that future that has already crashed into the present. That's what we're doing. We're making a foray into God's future right now and being transformed by that future which is present in an intense, personal way in the corporate worship of the triune God of the universe. Here in the heavenly Jerusalem, here with the angels, here with the assembly of the firstborn, here with the spirits of the righteous made perfect, here with King Jesus, by being in the presence of God, by being in that radiating light that emanates from the triune being of his presence, by having that light perform eschatological LASIK eye surgery on us, that's how we come to see better. That's how we come to see better. In the Divine Comedy, Dante, after crawling out of the pits of hell, and then traversing his way up Mount Purgatorio, he finally makes it to paradise. He finally makes it to paradise. He can finally see for the first time. And this is what Dante writes as he enters paradise. In the profound and shining being of the deep light, three circles appeared of three colors and one magnitude. One seemed refracted by the other, like Iris's rainbows. And the third theme seemed fire-breathed equally from both. Oh, how the words fall short, and how feeble compared with my conceiving. And they are such, compared to what I saw, that it is inadequate to call them merely feeble. He continues, O eternal light, who only rest in yourself, know only yourself, who understood by yourself and knowing yourself, love and smile. Those circles that seem to be conceived in you as reflected light, when traversed by my eyes a little, they seem to be adorned inside themselves with our image in its proper colors. And to that, my sight was fully committed. Dante is beholding the face of God in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And then he writes, listen to those words at the end again. Those circles that seem to be conceived in you as reflected light, when traversed by my eyes, when looked at with my eyes just a little, they seem to be adorned inside themselves with our image. He sees God as this reflected light, and he's looking at it closely. He can't quite make out the being of God. And yet in there, it seems like he sees our image, but in its proper colors. And to that, my sight was wholly committed. It's all he could look at. Beloved, we don't see the world aright because we are not aware of our current situation. Our affections and our eyes are not fixated on reality as it is, but rather reality as we happen to see it with our faulty eyes. And our lives, they will follow our eyes. Our feet will follow wherever we are looking. And when we fail to assess ourselves properly, when we fail to make a proper assessment of where we are, well, we're going to go off on a weird path. We can only follow what our eyes see. I had a student of mine sent me a story recently, a few weeks back. 
sent me this story about this multimillionaire. This multimillionaire who made a ton of money in the world of magazines. Now, this man, as a high schooler, not my student, but the multimillionaire, as a high schooler, he was an awful student, a terrible student. He was lazy, very lazy, as awful students tend to be. And he was bordering on failing out of school. He went to take the SATs, and he only went to take the SATs because his mom forced him to take the SATs. He fought her on that. He's like, why am I going to take the SATs, mom? Like, what, what am I doing here? You know, like, it's just going to be an abomination. You don't want to see that score. But she forces him to take the SATs, and he takes them. He scored almost a 1,500 out of 1,600. His mom questioned him. She says, you cheated. He goes, I didn't cheat. He goes, you cheated. I know my son. You cheated. The boy swore up and down. He says, I didn't cheat. I didn't cheat. And now... Having earned 1500 he started acting a little bit different. He said, well, kids that earn 1500s they go to class on time. They study. They ask their teachers questions. They read books. He started thriving. He started getting A's in every class. And he eventually goes on to be this hyper-successful businessman. Well, far down the road, he comes to find out that through a technical glitch... He, along with a handful of other students, were given the wrong SAT score. (laughs) He got his real SAT score. He scored a 700. I think you get 700 points for writing your name. That is an abomination of a score. He got a 700. He bombed the test. You see, the way one views themselves will change the way they act. Even the way that one performs. Right? He saw himself as an A student, and so he was. He just was one. We need to let this passage, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, we need to let scripture reset our understanding of what is going on here. We need to let it tell us who we actually are. Letting these words of Hebrew dice up our milk toast, bland, lifeless ecclesiology. Letting these words wreak havoc on our non-eschatological vision of what church is. Right now, that can help us to start to regain a sacramental imagination. It can start to help us to regain a sacramental vision of what it is that we have come to. These words of Hebrews, they change everything. They change the way you view absolutely everything. In her majestic novel, Gilead, Marilyn Robinson, she gets this idea. And she gets it in a big way. The novel is about a 76-year-old minister from Gilead, Iowa. It's a fake town, but it is a very, very real story. 76-year-old minister, and he's dying. He's got a heart issue. And he is writing a letter to his 7-year-old son, sort of a stream of conscious letter. That's the whole novel, just a letter to his 7-year-old son as he is dying. And the pastor, the dying pastor, has started to have his eyes healed. And he starts to regain a sacramental imagination of what the world is like. This is what he writes at one point of the letter. Ludwig Feuerbach says a wonderful thing about baptism. I have it marked. He says, water is the purest, clearest of liquids. In virtue of this, its natural character, it is the image of the spotless divine spirit. In short, water has a significance in itself as water. It is on account of its natural quality that it is consecrated and sealed as the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. 
So far, there lies at the foundation of baptism a beautiful, profound, natural significance. And then he stops. He's writing this letter once again to his son, right? And then he stops because he's distracted out his window. And outside the window, he sees a young couple in love, high school-age couple. And a rainstorm has just came through. A big rainstorm has just came through, and it stopped. And now the sun is shining. And there's these little prisms everywhere because of, of, of the water on the ground. And he sees the young boy jump up and grab a branch of a tree that was holding all those beads of water. And the water rains down on the little girl, and she spins around in his sundress. So he recounts that story. He stops, and he gets back to the letter, and he says, It was a beautiful thing to see, like something from a myth. I don't know why I thought of that now, except perhaps because it is easy to believe in such moments that water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily for growing vegetables or doing the wash. You see, she, Marilyn Robinson, she made a dangerous foray into God's future, which is present now, and was able to see with renewed eyes that water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily for growing vegetables or doing the wash. That is what water was made for. Everything else is a substitution. It's a derivative. It's secondary to what it was made for. That's what water is for. People who realize, people who have swam in the deep waters of the text of Hebrews and have come to truly understand that they right now sit among the angels, they can no longer even view water the same way. Because you start to realize, I've been viewing water the wrong way all along. You realize you lacked a sacramental vision. You realize you lacked a sacramental imagination. So, having looked at what we have come to, and why it is that we don't see it, let's look at our final point. What we need in order to see it. What we need in order to see it. Well, I'll cut right to the chase. Why don't we see what we've come to? What do we need in order to see it? We need faith. Gerhardus Voss writes of this passage. Here in Hebrews, faith is the proving of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the organ for apprehension of unseen and future realities, giving access to and contact with another world. It is the hand stretched out through the vast distances of space and time whereby the Christian draws to himself things far beyond so that they become actual to him. Notice those beautiful words, that faith is the organ. It's the instrument by which we apprehend unseen current realities. Faith is the hand stretched out through the vast distances of space and time whereby the Christian draws to himself things far beyond so that they become actual to us right now. It's only by coming to grips with the realities to which we have already come through, by the mouth and eyes of faith, through the organ of faith, that we can, in the here and now, begin to live as kings and queens in these modest tents. We can only live properly as those who have all the inheritance rights do the firstborn sons, when by faith we understand the inheritance that we have already come to. 
We saw that the Old Testament prophets, that they chastised the Israelites for not seeing properly. Right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. But we, you and I, unlike the patriarchs, are in the words of Voss, pilgrims with heaven's doors wide open. Think of those words. We are pilgrims with heaven's doors wide open. That is to say that you and I have better vision than Jacob did in Genesis 28. When he saw the ladder with the angels ascending and descending. Because we have seen the son of man. And we have seen angels ascending and descending upon him. And with heaven to stores wide open, blown open because of the son of man. We now worship with those angels right now. He has blown the roof off of this place. And now this has become a special place. A unique place. A place that we don't really see what's going on. We need faith to see this. And much to our discredit, much to our shame, many of our Old Testament fathers in the faith, they had far greater, far greater faith than we have with far less privilege. David, prompted by faith and moved by love, he became a prophet of things he could never see. We need to fight our nature. Fight against our desire to see things the way that they appear so that we might gain a vision of the heavenly realities that we've come to. And this place that we have come to, it is a place of rest. This is Sabbath rest. Rest indeed, but it is a place of joyful, active rest. Anthony Esselin, the great Dante scholar, he says of paradise, of heaven, he says that it is a place of peace, But it is a peace magnificently magnificently expressed by rest, but not rest exactly, but by the glee of motion, of ringing of bells, of country dances, of high-hearted lovers in love. It's the glee of motion. It's an active rest. Faith lets us see that we, what we see with our carnal eyes in this moment, we are but a small motif in a story written by someone else. And it is a story far more interesting than the one that we see with our carnal eyes. The story of what we have actually come to is way better than the one you see with your eyes. Brad McDuffie, he uh, sent me this wonderful lecture by a professor from Canada on T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. I love The Wasteland, and Brad knew that, so he sent me the lecture. The professor explains that in his genius poem, Eliot is giving the reader bits of culture, the great song of humanity, broken up by war, and then reassembled in a new frame. Right? Eliot's writing The Wasteland in 1921, right, right after the aftermath of World War I. World War I's 1914 to 1918, and the world has been devastated by it. The tradition of the world, particularly the West, was shattered by World War I. And Eliot, in the wasteland, he cleans up the debris. He glues it back together. And he creates a mosaic that not only keeps the song alive, but it adds a new note. Think about that image, right? World War I, boom, shatters a stained glass window. And the wasteland is Eliot scooping it all together, gluing it back together. And now the frame that is the wasteland is a new note in the song that had been progressing and seemed like it was destroyed by the war. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's 
what we are. We are fragmented notes broken up by war, by the reign of sin. We are broken up pieces that are assembled here together by the Spirit. And joined together, we form a cosmic cacophony, a musical masterpiece that makes Mozart look like the Muppets. It makes Bach sound like toddlers banging around on pots and pans. That's what we sound like here when we are gathered together. Those broken up by war, reassembled into a new thing, the church, the heavenly Jerusalem. With this new vision, with this true vision, with the reality presented before you in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, you should come to this place each week and be refreshed. You should come and knock the roof off of this place with your hymns because the roof has already been lifted. Heaven has invaded earth. And at this moment, we having died to our biological families, having died to our carnal vision, we right now worship with our father Abraham and our mother Sarah and with Mary and Peter and Paul. We sing and pray and feast with our brother Coach Spanger and we sing and feast and pray with your parents and your grandparents that died in the Lord. For you have not come to church this morning. That is not what we come to. But you have come to Mount Zion, and you have come to the city of the living God. You have entered into the heavenly Jerusalem, and you have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And you have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you have come to God, the judge of all. And you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And you have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All those with ears, let them hear. All those with eyes, let them see. Amen.